now let me try that again. I invite you to turn to, uh, surprise, surprise, the book of Colossians. Uh, there you go. And so we will be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn uh, to Colossians 3, considering verses 16 and 17, God willing, this morning. And while you're finding your way to the book of Colossians, I do, um, would like to remind you that even as we gather as a, as a church and by God's grace, uh, he has called me and six other men to serve as your elders, or scripture calls your shepherds. We are thankful that uh, Christ is the chief shepherd, and he has appointed for us under shepherds in the church, sometimes called elders or overseers. I trust you are thankful for the ministry of our elders as much as I am in this church. You're also aware that in just, a, what, about three months from now, this church will be taking this great step of faith and planting Lovettsville Baptist Church. We know dozens of you are planning to leave Hamilton Baptist Church to go start this new work. And amongst those leaving are three of our seven elders. And so uh, Dave and Tom and, of course, Pastor Cody will all be going and starting Lovettsville Baptist Church, God willing, this September. And so even as we plan and prepare, and we're going to gather and pray at 4 o'clock a week from Saturday, June 19th, for one hour, as God's word, I think, tells us to do, we're going to do that. We want to, we want to put our efforts, our prayers behind this Love Until Baptist Church plant. We also, as a church, those who remain behind, have to think about Hamilton Baptist Church and the direction in which we go and the future in which God has given us, for which I am uh, incredibly excited at how God is going to be working through our church and the opportunities, by the way, that, the, the, uh, that will emerge because of the void that is created by so many people leaving this church for us to step up and fulfill those ministries. In particular, we need elders. As you know, I think we're probably already under shepherd as a church, to be honest. Seven shepherds for a church this size is probably uh, two or three too few. And, and so we need to replace three of those men. And I'm excited, the elders are excited to be able to announce to you today that we have been in the process of training and equipping three men that we would like uh, to come and serve as elders of this church. And so we are delighted to let you know that Doug Rao has been approached by the elders and is going through the elder training process. Doug and Irene have been a great blessing to this church. Doug, is, of course, as many of you know, co-teaches with Butch Corson in his Sunday school class. But maybe you don't know that, that uh, Doug for, for uh, years now has been joining Pastor Josh and sometimes myself on pastoral visits. Doug has an incredible heart uh, for God's people, a great love for this church, and, and so we're excited to be able to put Doug Rao before you. Doug, where are you? There you are. You raise your hand uh, if you don't know Doug. Uh, secondly, we're excited to let you know that Kurt Calloway has been approached by the elders. Kurt, will you raise your hand over there? Uh, there's Kurt. Uh, Kurt, of course, you know Kurt uh, from uh, the drums back there. He's been serving us in this praise ministry, using God's gifts, sometimes on guitar and leading us in worship. Of course, Kurt has been teaching our youth Sunday school class. And uh, Kurt, if you don't know, has a theologian's mind. He has a great love for scripture, a desire to understand it and apply it to our lives, and will be a great asset, I know, to this church. And lastly, uh, the elders are very pleased to um, present before you Ben Cochran. Uh, ben, will you raise your hand for us, in case you don't know Ben? Of course, Ben and his family have been here longer than most of us, right? And it's hard to list how many ways Ben has served this church. Of course, we know Ben, 
from his uh, ministry as a praise leader, but then has been a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a short-term missionary, and on and on it goes. I think about Ben. I think about a man who loves Hamilton Baptist Church. You remember when you, when you got married and you made that vow? He said, I'll take you to be my spouse for better and for worse. That's how I believe Ben loves this church. Ben is committed to Hamilton Baptist Church and our good times and our not-so-good times. He has an amazing loyalty to this church, and I think that comes from his deep love for her and for her God. And so I'm thankful for these men. I'm thankful that God has brought them to us. I think we are a blessed church to be able to count these men among our number. And we will be blessed to have them serve us as elders. Wouldn't you agree, church? Amen. Amen. So these three men are going to have an opportunity to share with you what God is doing in their life in the next three Sunday morning services. We would like for you to encourage them and and appreciate them during this time. They've been going through the elder training process, meeting with me on Saturday mornings, meeting with the elders, and on it goes, and have been doing so for months and months, perhaps close to six months now. Um, we would like you to be an encouragement to them, but we also understand that as Baptists, we believe the ultimate authority in the church lies within the congregation. We are a congregational church, and therefore, uh, we want to give you, the congregation, an opportunity not only to affirm these men, but should you have any concerns with them, in light of the qualifications listed for us in Scripture for an elder, which is found in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5, we'd like for you to be able to bring that to the sitting elders' attention over the next four weeks. So you have this opportunity that you might be able to, if you have any concerns at all, we hope and trust you won't. But if you do, we want to give you that opportunity to come to the elders and bring, bring that to our attention. We only ask that you do so not only within the next four weeks, but that you do so non-anonymously. So we will not be taking any anonymous feedback, you have to, uh, we would like to be able to meet with you and talk about that. And um, even as I, I share this, I'm reminded of uh, Jeremiah's wonderful passage in Jeremiah 23, in which God says, I will place shepherds over them who will care for them. May that be always true of Hamilton Baptist Church. So let's pray for these men even now, can we? Father, we're thankful for Doug and Kurt and Ben. We're thankful for the men who serve as elders even now. We pray that, God, you would always choose to provide for us elders, uh, shepherds, pastors, overseers, your word teaches us, who love this church, but more fundamentally love Jesus Christ, trust his word, and want to guide us and lead us by it. So we pray that you would continue to bless us in this way, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Hopefully you found your way to the book of Colossians. Here we find ourselves. Um, we're going to uh, put our foot on the gas pedal a little bit and do two verses this morning. Um, so, uh, uh, verse, uh, beginning in verse 16, Colossians 3 and verse 16, our New Testament reading for this morning. Here now, once again, the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now that we can consider, and we do so with a heart, with a prayer, like Samuel did of old, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> 
It was in the year 1685 that the great composer George Friedrich Handel was born, the same year as uh, Bach, and yet Handel found life as a composer far more difficult than Bach did. He spent most of his life living in England, this German did, uh, would, would reside in England for most of his life, where the competition of composers was incredibly challenging. In particular, he found it challenging to find patrons for his work, found a very political process to which he was not gifted. He was also under attack by the Church of England as a composer because he had a, a desire to perform religious pieces in secular theaters. So by the age 56, in the year 1741, Handel found his health failing, and he was facing debtor's prison. Two events turned his life around. The first was uh, three Irish charities commissioned Handel to compose a work as a fundraising benefit for those who were in debtor's prison. The second is that he was given a text, uh, a rough text, from a friend that could be used for an opera uh, around the life of Christ. So on August 22nd, 1741, Handel sat down and began to compose. He finished on September 14th, 24 days later, after writing 260 pages of music. Simply gave his composition the name Messiah. Considering the brevity of time he had to write that work, some have considered Handel's Messiah to be the greatest feat in the history of musical composition. He was so absorbed in the work that he worked around the clock, barely slept just an hour or two a night, barely ate, never left the house. A friend who visited him during his composition simply found Handel at his writing desk sobbing with emotion. A little bit later, after he had wrote, written the Hallelujah Chorus, he said to a servant, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God seated on his throne. Later, he described his writing experience of Messiah, alluding to Paul's words, saying, whether I was in the body or out of the body when I wrote it, I know not. He first performed the Messiah six months later in Dublin, and the proceeds would free 142 people from debtor's prison. He would go on to perform Messiah uh, 29 more times, only once in a church. Uh, by the way, with John Wesley in attendance. His last performance was in 1759, when uh, Handel was 75 years old, at the end of the performance, he faded at the organ and would die eight days later. This German composer is honored with being buried in Westminster Abbey, where his statue shows him holding the manuscript from Messiah, open to the page which reads, I know that my Redeemer liveth. In one performance, perhaps the most famous performance, was in London. The king happened to be in tennis, George II. The choir began to sing, as you perhaps know, the Hallelujah Chorus. King of kings, forever and ever, Lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah, right? and he shall reign forever and ever. The sitting king, George II, was so moved by the praise to his king that he stood, rose to his feet with head bowed in reverence to the high king of heaven, the entire audience following George's lead, beginning a tradition that continues today, all stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. The music moves him. Music moves us. I think that's undeniable. By the way, just kind of as a footnote to this message, 
if we are, as human beings, a product of time and chance, just a cosmic accident, as the materialists and the secularists want to tell us, explain music to me. Explain the feelings that music creates. Explain to me why it is that Alzheimer's patients can forget their very loved ones, but can still sing the hymns upon which they were raised. Explain to me that every single culture which we have ever found, every single one without fail, no matter how isolated, is a musical people. There is music found in every culture. I will explain it to you, by the way. It is because we have a musical God, and we are made in God's image. God, of course, could have created the world without music. He could have created it without singing. He could have created it without concert halls and instruments, without whistling and piano concerts and recitals. But he didn't, did he? You ever wonder why? Why would God create music? I wonder if one answer is because music has a unique power to awaken and to communicate emotion. Consider the words from Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian who wrote some 300 years ago. The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and to do it with music, but only that these things have a tendency to move our affections, to move our hearts, and to move our emotions. Therefore, it's no surprise, I think we read Colossians 3.16, they were singing psalms and hymns and spiritual, uh, spiritual songs with thanksgiving in their hearts to God. We once again find ourselves here in Colossians chapter 3, and I'll tell you, I think now for the sixth time, Colossians 3 is a wonderful summary of the Christian life. It is a, a, the Christian ethic, it is the Christian morality. Of course, we have discovered time and again that the Christian morality is based upon the Christian identity. In other words, we need to understand who we are first before we can understand how we are to live. And therefore, Paul begins brilliantly there in verse 1 of chapter 3, telling us that we have died in Christ and been raised with Christ. In verse 3, he tells us we are now hidden with Christ, united with him by faith. And then in verse 4, he tells us that our true self will be revealed when Christ returns. And it is based upon these truths of who you are in Christ, that identity, that Paul goes on to tell us the, the, that we ought to put to death these behaviors that linger, verses 5 through 8. And then, and then he tells us we need to embrace the new creation which Christ has come to bring, namely the church, in verses 9 through 11. And then he begins to think, well, why we're living in the church, he, he, he talks about how we interact with each other within the church, verses 12 through verse 15. And then finally, for our purposes this morning, he explains that this church, with this new behavior, has a new worship, verses 16 through 17. So if you want to put like Colossians 3, 1 through 17 in a sentence, you might say that our new identity leads to a new morality lived among a new community that has a new worship. Our new identity leads to a new morality lived among a new community that gathers for a new worship. And therefore, I, I think these verses are incredibly precious to us. They are so because there are very few passages in Scripture that tells us how the early church gathered for worship. What did they do when they came together to worship God? And we see the key elements here is that they received God's word, they sang God's praises, and they were guided by God's name. That'll be our three points this morning, that we are to receive God's word and sing God's praises and be guided by his name. For those keeping time, my last point will be exceedingly brief. Okay. And our hope 
is that we will pray uh, that these texts would not only describe Hamilton Baptist Church, but God willing, in just a few months, Lovettsville Baptist Church as well. We begin by thinking that the church, when it gathers, receives the word of Christ. That's what we read there in verse 16, don't we? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, the word of Christ is an unusual phrase. Paul will typically say the word of God. Here he chooses to say the word of Christ. And I think he does so because he wants to draw attention to that the scripture actually points us to Jesus. So if you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, you'll find ten of them. All of them are from the Old Testament, and all of them are about Jesus. So we know the Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus would teach us as much in Luke 24. And of course, we know the New Testament is about Jesus. And so all of Scripture, would rightly we rightly say, is about Jesus. It is the word of Christ. And so what we find here in verse 16 is very helpful, I think, as I've already said, is that the early worship of early Christians, this is again written in 62 AD, just uh, less than three decades after the resurrection of our Lord, the early Christians were gathered together and the reception of Christ's word with its focus on Christ was at the center of what they did. Now, of course, that, that's probably no, no surprise to you. You come to church and you hear sermons, right? You might think, of course you do. But please, please don't simply assume that just because we do that. There, there are many other forms of worship, even within the Christian tradition, that the focus is more on acts to perform rather than words to receive. And so it's helpful for us that we see, no, 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 the early church was receiving God's word. And this, uh, once again, makes me proud to be a Baptist. If I could uh, uh, pat us Baptists on the back, we take, get a beating pretty, uh, pretty often. And so I don't know if you ever realize that Baptists have a particular architecture. I don't know if you're familiar with Baptist architecture. Some of you don't care, so this will only take about 45 seconds. But if you walk into uh, like a Presbyterian church or Methodist church, and we, of course, love and cherish our Methodist and Presbyterian brothers, uh, you often find the pulpit where? You often find the pulpit off to the side. The table will be center. The pulpit will be off center. You want every Baptist church you ever walk to, walk into, where will the pulpit be? It's right where the pulpit is right now, dead center, right, right behind the table. Because the Baptists, even by our architecture, want to conclude, want to communicate the centrality of the proclaimed word of God. And we should not take that for granted, as I already said. I think more and more churches today and movements are, are turning to spectacle, are turning to technology, rather than the clear teaching of God's word. And so we should make sure that our gathered worship is not a, a performance to observe, but a proclamation to hear. For Paul tells us that the word of Christ needs to dwell in you. That's to dwell in you. That is to, to live in you, to be at home in you. Right? That's how the word should mark you. As one pastor said, it shouldn't mark you like, like you dwell in a college dormitory where the furniture is basic and, and it's all stripped bare every year and you don't leave your mark there. It should mark you like a, a family marks the home they dwell in. And you walk into a family's home, right? And you, you see the pictures on the wall that communicate the family lives there and you see the crayons on the floor right and you see the artwork uh, on the refrigerator and you go outside and there's a beautifully cultivated garden or go out back and there's a two and a half story tree house with three decks right and <laughs> right and you go inside and you find a well-ordered kitchen and and you see okay listen I see a family lives here the the home is marked by the family the family dwells there and so Paul says listen church let the word of Christ dwell among you. Be marked by the gospel. Now, people come here to Hamilton Baptist Church and say, I don't know about these people, but I can tell you one thing, God's word lives among them. It is to dwell within us. 
And so therefore, it's important, even when the word is preached as it is right now, that you receive it not as a spectator, not passively, you're actively embracing it. Right? We don't receive the word of God like we go and watch a movie. Remember we had movie theaters? Right? Remember what those were? Right? We'd all go to the movie theaters? Okay? And we and we leave the movie theater and we say, well, did you like that? Or what was your favorite scene? Or what was it? Right? Like, that's not how we leave a worship service. We don't want to say, well, did you like that? Or was that what was it? What about that treehouse comment? Well, that was a pretty funny one, wasn't it? Right? And on you go. No, you say, did I hear from God today? What did you hear from God? What should we do? How should we live? What should we think in light of what we saw? Today, you do remember perhaps it was Peter in Acts chapter 10 who was summoned by the Holy Spirit to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel to them. But before Peter could say even a word, Cornelius said, we are all gathered here today to hear what God has told you to say. That should be our hearts when we come. That we will come that the word of God may dwell in us and do so richly. I love that little adverb that Paul writes there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. Do you drink coffee? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. Good. Of course. You're a Christian, aren't you? Well done. That's the right answer. Good. Okay. I started drinking coffee when I was 14 years old. Uh, when I learned to sneak out of my second story bedroom window, drop down on the patio overhang. Uh, teenagers, close your ears for a minute. And uh, get on my bicycle, ride two miles to Denny's, and sit there at the bar at Denny's at 3 a.m. and drink coffee. I don't, have you ever gone to Denny's at 3 a.m.? It's a very interesting place. Right? I spent seven years as a youth pastor, and every once in a while, I'd have the middle school boys spend the night at my house, and we would hang out and play and be stupid, and they all knock off in the living room about uh, 2 a.m., and 3 a.m. would come around. I'd wake them all up, and they'd say, what's going on? I said, get your shoes on. We're out of here. I said, where are we going? We're, we're going to Denny's, Okay. And, and I would bring in, you know, eight or ten uh, middle school boys, and they're all weary-eyed, and, and they would soon become very wide-eyed as they walked into Denny's at three. I never told their mom about this, but they would walk into <laughs> Denny's at 3 a.m., and, and they, there's a very strange assortment of people there at 3 a.m. There's sad people, and there's lonely people, and there's, there's drunk people, and there's angry people, right? And you wait around Denny's long enough at 3 a.m., the police are coming. I guarantee it. They will show up. And so I would sit them at a long table, and uh, I would open the book of Proverbs there at the end of the table, and I would teach them about the fool. Now, I would do so quietly, right, because I had illustrations all around me, but I, I would teach them about sloth. I would teach them about uh, uh, wise decisions and delayed gratification and what God teaches us from the book of Proverbs that they might understand how God would guide us. It was like my scared straight program for middle school boys. And I would tell them about a 14-year-old California kid who was deeply disobedient to his parents and deeply sad. And he used to drink coffee in a Denny's like this at 3 a.m. Until God got a hold of his life. God saved him. God brought him to himself and redeemed him. But he never saved that boy from his love from coffee. And so all these boys, they would drink coffee, and they would drink it black, not with, you put in syrup or sprinkles or whatever you do, just burnt, black, and bitter Denny's coffee at 3 a.m. And we would study God's word together. God has saved me by his grace, but he has not saved me for my delight in coffee. I'm very pleased to have it dwell in me richly. Right? Right, let it penetrate me. This is how we should consider the word of God. Yes, I want 
the word of God, right? And when someone comes around, you want to refill your answers, yes, please, give me more over and over and over again, memorizing it and meditating on it and discussing it and living out of it and letting it guide us, just as our Lord Jesus has taught us. Of course, how many times does Jesus say, listen, it is written. They come to Jesus and say, can I do this? And Jesus says, well, it is written. Or is this legitimate? And Jesus says, well, it is written. Or can, should, should I go this way? And Jesus says, it is written. Jesus is not, never says, well, what does the culture say? Jesus never says, well, let me think, what's the right side of history here? Okay? Jesus does not come and say, well, what does your heart tell you? He doesn't say that ever. He says, rather, it is is written. His mind is saturated with scripture, but not just his mind, his will. He wanted to do what God had told him to do. And whenever they would come and try to guide Jesus, he would go back to the scripture when he's assaulted by the devil and the devil says, do this. And Jesus says, no, I can't do that. Because God told me to do this over here. Or even in the garden, when Peter draws his sword to start lopping off ears, uh, Jesus says, put the sword away, Peter. Don't you understand? I can call 12 legions of angels, but then how would Scripture be fulfilled. His entire will is conformed to Scripture, even his heart as he's carrying his cross upon that Jerusalem road, beaten, dying. He sees women weeping. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourself, for it is written. And then he quotes Hosea. Why he's dying. He's dying, and the word of God is on his heart. Of course, there upon the cross, he quotes scripture after scripture, doesn't he? Psalm 69, I thirst. Psalm 22, why God have you forsaken me? Psalm 35, into your hands I commit my spirit. I think it's Pastor Tim Keller who says, if you're falling off a cliff and you see in the rocks below your death, what do you cry out? I, I mean, do you think at that point, okay, I got to think of something really good to say. This is my last, right? You know, what comes out of you at that point? Whatever's inside you. That's what comes out. What comes out of Jesus while he's dying? Scripture. Dwelling richly within us. Paul tells us that this happens three ways. There are three participles here given to us. Participle, 30 seconds grammar, hold on. Participle are words that end, English words that end with ing. They are helping verbs, subordinate verbs. The main verb here is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We're told therefore uh, three ways in which this happens, three participles. They're all there in verse 16. Teaching, there's the first one, and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then thirdly, singing, singing. And so the word of Christ dwells in us as we teach, admonish, and sing. So teaching is the positive act of sharing truth. Admonishing is the negative act of warning someone from the truth. And this all happens, you see there in verse 16, uh, amongst the body of Christ, within the Christian family. This is not simply the role of elders and pastors. You and I are to teach and admonish, what does he say? One another. There's no reference to pastors there. And so if the word dwells in you, and if the word dwells in, in the church, then we will be communicating this to one another. It's one of the reasons I love my Sunday school class and why we, we don't get very far. We're studying the book of James, and, and, and Tom will, 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 will refer us to one verse, and then, and then, then Paul will say, well, well, that makes me think of this verse, and then Ben will say, oh, what, what about this verse over here? And Katie says, well, I'm thinking about this verse, and then, and then Amy comes and says, oh, I, I, okay, well, here's, here's a scripture passage, and then Sean raises his hand and says, I'm confused, and... Uh, <laughs> and 
And, and it's all just like this glorious, like we're just sharing scripture with one another. We're just all getting together and saying, well, this is the word and this is the word. And we're, we're teaching one another and admonishing one another as God's word tells us. And we gather for community groups and do this to one another. See, we, we need to, you, you can't just simply show up one hour on Sunday. Well, I mean, it's not an hour, as you know. Um, but you just can't show up once on Sunday morning and go on your merry way. You have to get involved. The, the church is not a, a, a service to attend. It's a, it's a new humanity which to belong to. It's a community which to give yourself to in order that you might give and receive the ministry of teaching and admonishing one another. So I tell you, if you want the word of Christ to dwell in you, according to Colossians 3.16, you need to have these relationships. We are giving God's word and receiving God's word. This is hugely impactful on Rosaria Butterfield, many of you know the story of the former Percival resident, and before that, a uh, prominent voice in the LGBT movement from her position as a tenured faculty member at Syracuse University. And she began to read the Bible as part of her academic research. The Bible began to dwell within her, leading to what she calls her train wreck conversion. She writes in her autobiography, the Bible got bigger inside of me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later, I sat in the pew at Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I kept going back to hear more sermons. You know what she says? I had made friendships with the people in the church by this time, and I really appreciated the way they talked about the sermons throughout the week, how the word of God dwelt in them, and how they referenced it in the details of their day. Isn't it a joy to be in relationships with God's people when we are teaching one another? And everywhere you turn, people are talking about what God is showing them in his scripture. You ask someone how their week was, and they say, well, it was great. I was reading John 10, and it was, you know, whatever it is, and on and on we go. And when everyone begins to do that, you got this verse, or God's showing you this in scripture, and we begin to exhort, encourage, and admonish one another as we might have the word of Christ dwell in us richly. How does it do it? Through teaching and admonishing. There's a third part of simple you see there, uh, singing, which leads us to our second point. We are to sing praises to Christ. Sing. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 16. A again, exceedingly helpful. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, to be honest, this half verse truly demands its own sermon. Okay? But there will be a mutiny in this church if I preach a half a verse. Okay? And so... Um, yep, so I, I want my job, I want to work tomorrow, um, so we're, we're just going to put it in a point, God forgive me, um, it is so glorious and wonderful, as we learn, so helpful, that the church from its very beginning was a singing church, of course God's people have always been a singing people, there's a book of songs in the Bible as you know, uh, there's choirs in the Old Testament as you know, there's directions to the choir masters, we read in Psalm 96 for instance, so sing to the Lord a new song, Sing to the Lord all, all the earth. We know Paul and Silas in prison there at midnight are singing hymns. We know when Jesus had the last supper in Mark 14, when the supper was finished, we read simply, then they sang a hymn. We know in Hebrews 13, let us offer through Jesus a sacrifice of praise to God. We look up in heaven in Revelation 14, and we read in verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder, and they were singing a new song before the throne. God's people have always been a singing people. 
In fact, the earliest description we have of the Christian church is a letter written by a man named Pliny in the year 112 AD. I should say the earliest uh, indication of the Christian church from a non-believer. Pliny was not a Christian. The Roman emperor was a man named Trajan. He's been hearing about these Christians in 112 AD, writes to Pliny, who's the governor of Bithynia, and says, hey, do you know anything about these Christians? Pliny writes the emperor a letter back, which we have a copy of, and he writes these words of Christians, 112 AD. They are accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. So we see that the church was doing so, not even in 112, but in 62 AD, and certainly before that, they were singing what psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Paul tells us. In other words, there's a diversity of music there. Now, we're not sure what these terms exactly mean, but we do know there's a variety. They are not simply synonyms. They mean different things. So even in this early stage of the church, there's a wonderful diversity in music. It's probably because no singular style of worship or praise captures the greatness of God's glory. You, of course, know God relates to us in different ways at different times. And therefore, to respond to God, we might best need to respond in different ways of singing. I appreciate what John Piper says when he writes, God meets us in high and holy ways. He meets us in lowly and meek ways. He meets us in thunderously glorious ways. He meets us in quiet, intimate ways. He meets us in complex ways and simple ways, curious ways and merciful way, ways. Therefore, there are aspects of God's character in relation to us that can only be expressed with high and fine expressions of music like Handel's Messiah. And there are aspects of God's character in relation to us that can only express, be expressed with more common and folk-like kind of songs like the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. What this tells us, of course, is that you and I as Christians should not stress over the style of worship. That it is not the style of music that unites us. It is the gospel. Jesus unites us, not how we play music. It should also tell us that it's probably good to have a variety of music. We're certainly excited as COVID goes away, we'll be able to bring back more praise, certainly bring back the hymn that we usually sing and after the choir sings, and we're looking forward to being able to reintroduce that back into our worship services in uh, the coming weeks. I've heard over and over again, by the way, this is just a side note, that COVID is going to change everything. We'll never do church the same. And I, to be perfectly honest, uh, I find that utter nonsense. We're going to just do church the way I think God tells us to do church. And so we're going to bring back hymns. We're going to have guitars. We're going to have organs. We're going to have this wonderful variety of music because we want to relate to God in different ways. You say, I don't like that kind of music. And I say, good. That's why we do it. Okay? <laughs> because... It actually gives you an opportunity to lay down your own preferences for the preference of a brother and sister in Christ. When we sing the type of style of music you don't prefer, and you sing so joyfully with your heart, you are effectively loving your brother and sister in Jesus. And that's far more important than your preferences being made. Um, and so we, we should sing to God and do so in, in a variety of ways. I would simply ask, has God done anything worthy of your praise? Then you should sing. Right? And you should sing so that we all can hear you. Right? You see, singing, remember, this is not just, it's not teaching and admonishing one another, period, and sing songs to Jesus. Singing is a participle 
that explains how the word of Christ dwells in us. So you think, how does the word of Christ dwell in us? It does so by singing, which tells us that we need to be able to hear one another if the word of Christ is going to dwell amongst us. So we sing to God, and then in some way, we're also singing to one another, or at least one another can hear it. So when we gather and sing praises to God, we're singing with the intent that God would hear our songs. That we, we believe God is listening to us, that we speak to the Lord in song, what we think and feel about who he is and what he's done and what the promises he has made. We want, to, we want him to hear that praise, but we also want other people to hear it, because singing is how the word of Christ dwells in us. Therefore, we don't sing our opinions. We sing what's grounded in and formed by and saturated with the word of God as we sing that truth. And in case this is not clear, the, the, the parallel passage in the book of Ephesians simply tells us, address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we're singing so that God can, so that God can hear, but that we can hear as well, right? This is why when we come together, we don't, we don't hand out, as you walk into this room, um, uh, noise-counseling earphones, right? That would be utterly contrary to the purpose of congregational praise. We want to be in a room with people who want to praise God for the same reasons we want to praise God and are encouraged when we hear them praising God to do so. Your singing makes me want to sing to God more, makes me want to love God more, wants me to draw to God more. It ministers to me. We're encouraged by each other's singing. It helps me understand God's worthy of my praise as well, and which is why we see this happening in the Bible. And as I mentioned, sometimes, in particular in the Old Testament, we see that God uses choirs to do so. And, and of course, we have a choir, and the choir is, is serving a function kind of like the same way in which we'll have someone come up and give a testimony to God's faithfulness, like Craig did last Sunday. And we want to hear from them. We want to listen to them. And so the choir comes, and the choir speaks to us in hymns and spiritual songs to help us to find our delight in Christ and in his gospel. You put all this together, we gather together, we want to sing to God, that's what he says, making, uh, with thanksgiving your hearts to God, therefore it's worship, but we want to be heard by each other, therefore it's congregational. We call it congregational worship. Which the implication, I think, is obvious, isn't it? That worship is not about having your needs met. It's not about having an experience. It's about glorifying God according to his worth and in obedience to his commands. So if you ever think on Sunday morning, you know, around 9 a.m. or whatever it is, should I gather with God's people and sing praises to God? The follow-up question you need to ask is, is not whether I want to or not. The follow-up question is, is God worthy of my praise today? And do God's people need to be encouraged today? And if the answer is yes then you should gather and sing. But that raises another question. Why singing? Why, why not just speak our praises, right? I mean, I could praise God with prose. Why, why singing? Well, I think he tells us there, with thankfulness in your hearts, right? So the singing comes from our hearts. In other words, you're not singing with your lips. You're not singing with your wills. You're singing with your hearts. We might say in, in English, it's heartfelt. There's feelings behind it. There's affection in it. And so the church, you put all this together, is filled with the word of God. And th therefore, we'll have hearts filled with joy. And those joy-filled hearts will, will sing. We'll sing. This is why we sing our praises. Singing is emotional as we begin. Right? We understand that. Music creates emotional realities in our lives. Right? Ladies, your husband comes home singing. Okay? 
Walks in the door singing, good sign or bad sign? Right? right? And I'm not saying, is it pleasant or unpleasant? I'm just saying, is it a good sign or bad sign? It's a good sign. Right. Why? Because there's joy in his heart. Right? Dads, you come home singing. That's what I sometimes do. And your children are off in a room making music together, praising God together. Right? That's pretty good, isn't it? That fills your heart because that means my children are happy. Their hearts are glad. So we sing because it expresses our heart's joy. It awakens our heart's joy. And the church is to be filled not just with singing, but heartfelt singing, joyful singing. And sadly, it's often not. One skeptic to Christianity said the chief contribution of Protestantism to human thought is the massive proof that God is a bore. And walk into that church, just a droning on of the congregation, no heart, no joy, no zeal, no earnestness to it. That's not fitting to God. Our hearts should be involved. The solution to a droning congregation, by the way, is not gimmicks. It's not to turn down the lights and put a spotlight on the band, or it's not to get a fog machine. It's not to turn up the band. It is turn to the word of God. Fill your hearts with the truth of who God is, what he's doing, what he will do, and that heart of joy should sing with great joy and earnestness. This is the church. We see it right here. The church, mind considering God's truth, the heart is rejoicing in God's worth as we sing to him. Because I'll tell you this morning that God is too great and salvation is too wonderful and heaven is too amazing for God simply to be thought about to be considered, to be analyzed, he is to be praised. Once again, Jonathan Edwards, I believe, is helpful when he said, God glorifies himself towards the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, by communicating himself to their hearts and their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations with which he makes himself known. God is glorified not only in his glory being seen, but in its being rejoiced in. And so as we move on to our third point, may I say, by way of application. Beware of the heart that feels nothing when the mind considers the truth of God. Because mental knowledge without heartfelt affection, I say without hyperbole, is demonic. Mental knowledge without heartfelt affection is the knowledge of demons, for the Bible tells us even the demons believe and shudder. They know the truth. They don't love it. Demons don't sing. God's people do. And so to engage the mind, as one put it this way, to engage the mind without affection is like calling for eating without taste, discovery without delight, warnings without fear, miracles without wonder, or gifts without gratitude. We, therefore, must sing we must sing from the heart, for God is too great simply to be considered. So you, Christian brothers and sisters, are commanded to sing. At least 50 times in the Bible, you are commanded to sing. Therefore, to not to sing to God is disobedience or what the Bible calls sin. Just very clear. You say, I can't sing, right? Some of you are thinking, I can't sing. Of course you can sing. Everyone can sing. You, you may not be able to sing well, right? I can't sing well. But praise God, he doesn't call us to perform, right? Right? He calls us to sing. And so we are to do so because God is worthy of it. Lastly, and I, as I mentioned very quickly, we are to be guided by the name of Christ. As you note, verse 17, once again, 
a whole sermon should be devoted to this verse. Uh, sadly, it will not be. God forgive me. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do everything in the name of Jesus Christ. We often end our prayers in Jesus' name, amen. I hope you know what that means. That's not like a fancy Christian way of saying goodbye. Right? It's not like saying, okay, I guess I'll let you go now. Okay? This is actually taught to us in the Bible. We pray in Jesus' name. We ask God in Jesus' name. And when we do so, what we're saying is, God, I'm asking for these things according to Jesus' will, for his glory, and through his power. Right? When I pray in Jesus' name, I'm asking for things according to Jesus' will, right? for his glory, and through his power. And so we are do everything, if you notice, in Jesus' name. Word or deed, right? Whatever you do, we're to do so in Jesus' name. So we, as God's people, we don't compartmentalize our life. We don't have like the Jesus areas and the work areas and the school areas and the family areas. No, everything, what does it say? Everything, do whatever you do in word or deed, in everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Monday morning, some of you are going to get to your desk, you're going to open your email, you are to do so in Jesus' name. Some of you are going to go to lunch with a friend tomorrow. You do so in Jesus' name. Some of you are going to react to that person merging in front of you, and you are to do so in Jesus' name. Okay? <laughs> and you get home after work, and you go and you kiss your wife, and you do so in Jesus' name. Everything in Jesus' name. Now, don't say that, because that would be weird. Okay? In other words, you don't say, baby, give me a kiss in Jesus' name. Okay? <laughs> or, I'm paying for these groceries in Jesus' name. Okay? Christians are weird enough, as you know, so we don't need to add weirdness on us, okay? And, but we are to understand in our hearts and our minds, listen, I'm doing this because I believe God wants me to do it. It's according to his will. I'm doing this because I want God to be glorified through it. And I'm doing this because I believe God has strengthened me in it. We are doing it in Jesus' name. How wonderful would the church be if we are all depending upon him and making much of him? And routinely being guided by him in what we do and what we say. Of course, we do all this with thanksgiving, as you see the end of verse 16, and with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And once again, we're back to thanksgiving. I don't know if you saw that in verse 16. I skipped right over it, didn't I? With thankfulness. I didn't mention that. Thankfulness uh, in your hearts to God. Thanksgiving, thanksgiving. We saw it in verse 15, chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 12, I believe it is. See it in chapter 4, verse 2. Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. We had a whole point in the sermon last week on that. If you want to learn more about that, I would refer, refer you to that. Let me just simply say, and ask this question perhaps, it might be helpful for us as we end our time in God's word. What do you give thanks to God for? What do you thank God for? So often I think we thank God for like the near miss on the highway, or we thank God for, you know, the, the, the healing of the, the cancer, or the year-end bonus, or whatever it is. And we should. We should thank God for those. But is your thanksgiving only limited to your well-being and to your comfort? In other words, are you thankful in ways that the non-Christian is not thankful for? Let me try that again. Uh, is your thanksgiving always the same as a non-Christian would be thankful? D.A. Carson writes, the unvarnished truth is that we most frequently give thanks for, what we most think, frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. Has Christ changed what you value? Has he changed what you have gratitude for? Has he changed your priorities? 
I think what we should chiefly give thanks for is our salvation. I think what we should chiefly sing to God about is our salvation. I think what we chiefly should consider with our minds is our salvation that has been brought to us by Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know salvation. You don't know that God offers to save you. We call Jesus a savior. That's a very important word in the Christian faith, a savior. If you don't know God's salvation, you then don't have an opportunity to give thanks to God for it or sing to him about it or wouldn't even want to consider it. So I tell you this morning, by God's word, he would save you, even now. In fact, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're delighted that you're here. I do believe, and you might find this weird, but I'll say it anyways, I do believe God brought you here. Uh, I do believe he has brought me here, too, to tell you what I'm about to tell you in the next 60 seconds. I think this is the most important thing you ought to hear. Is that the scripture tells us that we all have gone our own way. We have all rebelled against God. The Bible calls it, as I already mentioned, sin. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion to God, that God, because he's good, will punish us. And yet, because he loves us, he sent his son, who we call Jesus, who became a man, lived a perfect life, and died upon a cross. And there, Jesus was not simply dying a physical death, he was actually being punished by God spiritually. He was taking our punishment upon him, for he deserved no punishment himself. We call that a substitute. Jesus died in my place. Jesus was punished by God in my place. And then three days later, to show that God had received that payment for my sin, not his, he was risen bodily from the dead, paving a way for eternal life for all who would trust him. So to be saved is not to work your way, but simply to yield your life to God in faith. For the Bible says, and we'll end here, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. May some of you do that even now as we pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word which instructs us and teaches us. It is indeed glorious and joy-giving, life-giving indeed. Pray that we would know it well here in this church and we would all the members of Hamilton Baptist Church gladly take on the role of seeing that the word of Christ dwells amongst these people, Richfield. And that because it does, we would be eager and earnest to sing you our praises. And when we're done singing, we leave from this place, that everything we do, whether word and deed, will be done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do this because we belong to you. We think there is nothing better in all of life than being a Christian. And we pray that perhaps by your grace, some others might become Christians today by yielding their life to Jesus in faith. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.